0: From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, editor in chief. Thanks for tuning in. Experience the surge in popularity among dermatologists with Unify surgical sutures from AD Surgical. Our sutures boast competitive pricing and exceptional needle quality, providing unparalleled value for your practice. Visit unifysutures.com and choose from over 300 suture options tailored to meet your specific needs. Call 888-841-8481 and mention this podcast ad to receive one free box of Unified Nylon Biopsy Sutures. No purchase necessary.
1: Welcome to another Dialogues in Dermatology. Today, we will be discussing preventing and surviving payer audits, something that is rare, but can be crucial to the survival of one's practice and as well as sanity. We are privileged to have Dr. Curtis Asbury with us to present on this topic. Dr. Asbury is an active member of DermCAC, the Dermatology Contractor Advisory Committee, as well as a member of our AAD Coding and Reimbursement Committee. As such, he is well versed in topics dealing with coding reimbursement and aggravation, such as audits. Dr. Asbury, what can you tell us about preventing and surviving audits?
2: So, this is, uh, like you said, near and dear to, to me. I run and own a small two-physician dermatology practice, and we actually do all of our billing in-house. And so, I kind of spearheaded that. And so, I see these. Audits come in, mostly the automated ones, but I see them and I deal with them, them personally myself. So I think that audits have a tendency to be taken personally. And I think that is why they're often very frustrating, but we need to remember that these audits are just the payers doing their job in preserving the sanctity of their mission, which is to make sure that we are being paid appropriately for the services that we provide.
1: Dr. Raspberry, there are several steps that one may take with respect to audits. What are these types of steps and how should we approach it both proactively and reactively? That's a good question. I think let's start with the proactive approach.
2: So I think it's very good to be prepared For an audit, I think we should all expect that at some point in our career we will have audits. So, the most important thing is to prepare for these in advance. The thing that we like to do in my practice and is is recommended is internal audits. So, we like to audit our own claims on a periodic basis before they go out for submission. The recommendation is 10 to 15 annually per physician. We do a little bit more in my office, but we pull random claims and we review them um, specifically for the things that an auditor might be looking for. So we're looking for what codes were billed. Is the documentation clear and accurate for those codes? Does it have the correct modifiers? Et cetera. And so this way we can see on our own if we have anything that is going on that may trigger an audit, any kind of pattern that may look as though we are not doing something we are supposed to be doing and it allows us to make sure that the entire practice is practicing the correct documentation that we need in order to successfully weather an audit should one come
1: there are also some things that one can look at at oneself to evaluate whether that practice or their practice could be an audit magnet and such things that i've discovered by way of dealing with medicare contractors is outlier billing behavior that is if one is a statistical outlier and is billing for a particular code greater than two standard deviations above the mean the payer will know that they have computers They scan for that kind of thing, and they may at some point be inclined to audit that practice to ensure that those outlier or presumed outlier billings are actually legitimate and supported by chart documentation and the patient mix. And sometimes in those cases, all that one has to do besides supplying the charts is attach an explanatory note as to why their patient mix is such that it causes them to bill as an outlier. An example would be most surgery. If one is a most surgeon and that is principally all they do, they're going to be an outlier for some of that uh, billing, and uh, one letter usually suffices.
2: Yes, we had this recently. We had a TPE, a targeted probe and education for our MAC And it was for the benign removal codes, which they were looking at this time last year, I believe. And we do probably do more benign lesion removals, both the biopsy codes and the shave removal codes, because we're a heavy skin cancer practice. And so I think that, again, their computers are going to be looking at it, but there are certain legitimate reasons why our practice may have been an outlier. And in our case, we passed the TPE with 100%. So just having an audit does not mean that you are doing something wrong. And I do think that's important for all of us to remember when we're audited.
1: One other instance before we go to more granular discussion of what can be done. One other instance that can trigger an audit is simply resubmitting claims that have been rejected without altering them if one does that repeatedly over and over again particularly to medicare that costs the system money to reprocess and yet if a rejected claim is resubmitted unmodified the same as it ever was that's not good because you haven't corrected anything and it'll be rejected again and eventually the medicare contractor may tire of that kind of event and punish you
2: that's also the definition of insanity right doing the same thing over again <laughs> yeah. without making any corrections about it. Why would it be reversed if you uh, didn't change anything? So that seems like you're just kicking the can down the road a bit.
1: It is, certainly. So if we look at what is key to ensuring a smooth process in the audit category, what are some essential steps that we may take that would enhance our chances of passing an audit well?
2: So when we do our internal audits, we always, like I said, make sure that we're using the correct codes for the diagnosis and the procedure. And so we want to be precise here. And I've often heard other dermatologists say things like, well, I don't use that code because I have a hard time getting paid and therefore I use this other code instead. But code selection shouldn't depend on which one is easier to get paid. Code selection should be done on what is the most precise, and accurate code for the procedure you performed. And so just because we know that one might more readily get paid doesn't mean that that makes it the correct code. So that's what we're looking for when we're talking about code accuracy. We also want to make sure that we're using the correct modifiers. I think that sometimes our EMRs will sometimes insert modifiers that are inappropriate, and so we have to pay close attention to what modifiers are being used, especially the tricky ones like 24, 25, and, and 59, we shouldn't just put a 59 on to unbundle something to get it paid. There might be a reason why those codes were bundled, and maybe we should not be billing both codes. same thing with the 24 modifier. This visit may well be within the global period for a reason, and it maybe was already included in the global payment. So maybe we should not be trying to unbundle that E&M visit from the procedure that it was related to. We also want to make sure that our documentation is clear and precise. We want to be comprehensive in our documentation, but we don't want to be overly verbose or with too many unnecessary details. I like to document my procedures with the same wording that's included in the CPT language. So I always do biopsy by shave method. I do shave removals. I don't do Shade removal biopsies, because who knows what code that is. I don't do excisional biopsies. I do excision of benign lesions. I do excision of malignant lesions. So I don't like to mix up the terms, especially when the codes themselves are different. And I like to document the same way each time. So that way, when I do a biopsy, it's documented the same each time. So my shade biopsies are going to look the same. So therefore, an auditor won't have any question about what I did in that situation. The other thing that's important, especially if you do paper charts, is having your signature on all of your chart notes, because just having an unsigned note may lead to a denied claim. It's less probably important in your electronic systems because most of them now require you to sign your notes prior to generating the claim. And so that is one of the benefits of an EMR which there are some, but paper charts are still friendly to others. If you do have to manually sign your chart, you want to make sure that you keep a signature log as well because we know that, especially if we're signing many documents today, our signatures tend to be messy. And so this can help clarify to an auditor that, yes, this is actually your signature. We like to be very detailed when preparation for our audit. We like to keep track of the times that we do our internal audits, what we're doing, And that way, that kind of organization will carry forth if we ever do get audited. It's good preparation for my staff. I'm a small practice, and so we don't have the administrative staff of a larger multi-specialty group or or large term practice. And so we need to make sure that we are staying clear and organized with our responses. So that way, we're efficient with the minimal staff that we do have.
1: And one thing that I've noticed that is implied but not always carried out within offices is to ensure that the staff really is aware of what an audit request means, that it is actually treated seriously and handled appropriately. Consequently, in one's uh, practice, it would behoove one to have designated individuals who would recognize the type of audit that's being called for and are empowered to appropriately fulfill that Uh, and that sometimes will uh, involve the physician in the audit as well and also ensure that you send them what they want you know it's sort of clear cut but it happens people don't always send the right stuff and if you're an auditor that doesn't endear you to whoever's sending the material Consequently, ensure that the process internally is set up so that an audit is recognized and the requested material is appropriately sent. Now, Dr. Asbury, there are some types of reviews of audits, and particularly RAC audits, that's the recovery audit uh, contractor, that uh, are done. And there are certain uh, criteria within those RAC audits. But before we get to that, i was just going to mention that one of the common audits that people get are CERT audits, and that's from Medicare, and that's uh, called comprehensive error rate testing. That is a project that involves ensuring that the Medicare contractor has actually appropriately process the claim. And it's, it's a measure of the contractor's appropriateness and propriety of processing claims. So those are rather benign audits. One sends in a few charts as requested and usually that's the end of it. However, if some impropriety on your part is noticed, then you may be contacted by the contractor to clarify those types of things. Now, back to the uh, Medicare and specifically the RAC audit types of audits, which do relate to other insurers as well, because they may be done similarly. What are those types of uh, audits, Dr. Asbury?
2: Okay, so we're talking about the RAC audits, and that's the recovery audit contractors. So this is specifically audits looking for overpayments to us. And so initially, they're going to have an automated review. That's kind of the most kind of benign audit in my experience. And so in this case, it's just a system. You know, they are looking at an algorithm. The computer is looking at your claims and have determined that there is something awry. And so they're looking, like I said, this is kind of algorithmically with kind of blatant errors that they can pick up. So we get these in our office sometimes. And oftentimes, it has to do with the timing of the claim submission. And so sometimes we'll send out a claim that's done from a visit at a later date first, and then we'll send out the claim from the prior date. Like, let's say we do a procedure, but we hold the bill because we're waiting on the pathology to send it out. In the meantime, that patient comes back, and we send out that claim for the subsequent visit. And it'll be something like we missed a modifier, and so we didn't have the 24. So they'll pay us initially because they didn't know about the global period. And then when we send out the original claim, they'll look back. The computer will pick up that it was actually a global period, and they should not have paid us for the following visit. And so automated review will be done, and an overpayment will be discovered. And so that's kind of those blatant reviews we see. Well, I'll come across these as well with Medicare Advantage plans in particular, where for some reason that, and I don't really know why, but their computer systems don't automatically apply the multiple procedure reduction correctly. And so they'll pay us 100% on multiple procedures when they should have paid us 50%. And so they'll come back and say that they overpaid us on a certain number of claim lines and we'll have to repay them.
1: I just wanted to interject one thing about overpayments. It is crucial to pay them back. And not say, "Ah, I'm not paying, I'll just wait. Because if you wait too long, that contractor will deduct those overpayments from other patients' adjudicated claims. And if you want an accounting mess caused in your office, that creates a tremendous accounting imposition. So I agree with
2: that. This is something that actually happened to us. You know, my office manager saw on the overpayment request that, oh, we don't, we could just not pay it and allow them to recoup it from further visits. But then when the recoupment came in, our ERAs were all messed up because we're like, where did the money go? Everything's not adding up. And we had to go back and look through previous overpayments to figure out why. And it made the adjudication from our end much more difficult. It would have been a lot easier just to send them a check. So let's get back to the audits here. And so the first one was automated review. We covered that. The next one would be a semi-automated review, which is similar, but basically the computer will note an error with some kind of uncertainty and that uncertainty requires a human review. And so at that point, you'll be contacted to submit documentation. A human review will review that documentation and either they'll agree with your documentation and no adjustment or they'll forward it to Medicare or the contractor for recruitment. So it's kind of like an in-between review. And then finally we have the complex review. And complex reviews, this makes sense when we think about our ENM services and how we're paid. So for our EM services, we're basically billing at a certain level because of medical decision making. And medical decision making is difficult for a computer to parse out. And especially from the sense that they're seeing our billing codes and our diagnosis codes, but that doesn't really communicate what our medical decision-making was. And so in this case, they're going to review our documentation, and a a coder, a certified coder or a clinician will be reading our documentation specifically to determine if they agree with the level of medical decision-making selected to necessitate that E&M level. So in these cases, you'll get notification letters for these complex reviews. It'll have rationales and it'll reference the specific policies and the medical documents to guide us where these errors came from and how to prevent these in the future. So that's essentially kind of the three types of RAC audits that we'll see, the automated review, semi-automated review, and then the complex review.
1: Now, since we're still on the topic of rack audits one can actually peruse the cms website or just search for rack audits and you can find out what the dermatology pertinent rack audits are that are in force at the present time and right now what we have is an automated audit for new patient visits what does that mean well sometimes we bill for a new patient and they've actually been in to see somebody in the last preceding three years and that somebody would be anybody in the practice in the group practice who's of the same specialty and that could be you that could be another individual who's of the dermatology specialty or it could be a physician assistant or nurse practitioner attached to one of the dermatology physicians in the practice so those kinds of slip ups sometimes happen and one ends up billing for a new patient inadvertently and lands in a rack audit situation another automated review is for add-on codes paid without primary code and or denied primary code. in other words the primary code such as the first biopsy it would be a primary code and each subsequent biopsy has an, a secondary code to it or an add-on code and if one doesn't put the primary code on or then uh, that's inappropriate and the rack, might get you. The last one is a complex audit, and that is for most surgery incorrect coding and incorrect units billed. And obviously, all of these are geared toward saving money and generating cash for the rack auditor, who's motivated to find something. So ensure they don't find something. <laughs> However, if you disagree. What would one do, Dr. Asbury? So you can always appeal
2: an audit outcome, okay? So you always have the ability to appeal even after the initial audit determination. So when you get your audit determination, you must appeal in writing, and then there's a specific timeline that your payer will have, and it'll tell you on your paperwork that you receive with your determination how long you have to appeal that. And so, again, we must be prompt and we should follow that timeline because if we do not, then we'll lose the ability to appeal. And so we can appeal. And eventually you can make yourself all the way to the administrative law judge. And we have had in our office, we had one a couple of years ago that made it all the way to the administrative law judge and many back and forth paperworks, But we won, we won the appeal. And so our appeal was for a, frozen section biopsy done in the office, the 88331. And they did not want to pay it because the patient on the same day as our visit went and saw their primary care who was working for a hospital. That primary care therefore billed a facility fee. And so they were trying to tell us that we could not get paid for the frozen section because it's included in the facility fee. And back and forth many times to explain we have nothing to do with that facility fee. We do not work for the hospital. That's a completely different practice. Eventually, the administrative law judge agreed with us and we got paid that money back.
1: So persistence can pay I've also discovered since I've been in private practice for 40 and a half years that getting involved personally as the physician can help. Some of these conditions are complex, and if the physician writes a note or ensures that the note is being written and the appeal is being written appropriately, it really helps. Uh, I found that it's not always uh, healthy to assume that staff knows all the terminology and nuances that go into appealing and uh, justifying why you should be paid. Now if you want further guidance on this uh, topic after Dr. Asbury so skillfully and completely discussed it, you can find more or alternate versions of the same advice but present it in a greater fashion. with some other details, you could go on the AAD website at AAD.org, select Practice Management tab, and then select under that Coding Resource Center and under Coding Resource Center, Audits. And within that tab, you'll find a plethora of information that can be of great utility if you're exposed to an audit. And uh, it may certainly relieve pain and suffering as well (laughs) without
2: drugs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Dr. Asbury. This has been illuminating. And at this point, we conclude another feature of Dialogues in Dermatology. Thank you, Dr. Miller.
0: Experience the surge in popularity among dermatologists with Unify Surgical Sutures from AD Surgical. Our sutures boast competitive pricing and exceptional needle quality, providing unparalleled value for your practice. Visit unifysutures.com and choose from over 300 suture options tailored to meet your specific needs. Call 888-841-8481 and mention this podcast ad to receive one free box of unified Nylon Biopsy Sutures. No purchase necessary. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more Dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to Dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.